KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino, and this is the Henry George Program. This is a program about housing, policy, and more. Today in the program, our guest is Jonathan Randolph. He wrote an article recently about the nitty-gritty of rent stabilization policies and Prop 10 on the ballot, what this really means. So let's just get into it. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. Yeah, so I, I really appreciated this is uh, the blog post we're talking about today is something that you wrote, and this came out on September 21st of this year, 2018. It's called Proposition 10 In-Depth, Costa Hawkins Repeal and Rent Control Expansion. And one thing I really appreciate from this is the fact that it uh, it really wanted to understand things better and really give a fair understanding to all trade-offs involved. When I've seen so many other t- uh, summaries of this, who I think want to simplify this as much as possible. And actually, I first I first know knew you from you actually sent in a few times different corrections to either particular legal issues or things that I misstated on the air, which I'm sure I do all the time. I, I try to. So yeah, thank you very much. I know the Prop 13 uh, at the Supreme Court level, uh, Norlinger v. Hahn, you uh, had a few summaries of the ex- existing updates of Prop 13, which are similar to this year's Prop 5, but uh, that I got wrong on the air. And I don't know how to incorporate that, but thanks very much for being very detail-oriented and wanting to uh, correct things when possible. Yeah, I, I started listening to your program last year, and then I uh, listened to all your previous episodes, and I was really interested in the Prop 13 episode because um, I independently was uh, studying the parent-child um, transfer issues for my own selfish purposes. <laughs> well, that's, that's <laughs> selfish ends are one way to learn more of it. But I'm glad that, you know, uh, at least in this this blog post right here, it, it it really talks about the overall problem to everybody and and delves into a lot of case law. I learned a lot from from what you brought up here. Uh, what is the problem? The problem is land rents. <laughs> yeah, um, the Proposition Ten uh, repeals Costa Hawkins, so it allows uh, all jurisdictions, all local localities in California, to uh, create any kind of rent controls that they want to subject to the constitutional constraints governing the fair rate of return. And the purpose of rent control is, of course, to prevent uh, the landlord from increasing the rent higher and higher and capturing all of the benefit of living in a prosperous region. Yeah, landlords getting an increase in rents when they can, that is, all in all, a problem because it's not, it's not good in itself, it's not good if you have the same amount of units, prices go up, landlords get more rent, and nothing else changes. That's just that's just a failure. And that's one question of when land values increase, what do we do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and rent control is one particular form of regulation of dealing with it. I, I like this, this blog. I would say it's probably the I've never seen it kind of just people say oh there's a lot of different things in the toolbox you tried to you know list all the different tools we can do to deal with this problem and I I think that's let's just go down your list of all the different things okay. uh, <laughs> number 1 is uh supply side stuff which is both upzoning and then also 
I would say it's somewhat separate, but also increasing sprawl. Yeah. Um, transportation and opening up d- development to uh, to a wider region, I think is how we you know got out of the um, the landlord problem after World War II. We, yeah. we basically 10x the area around every metro region. Um, so San Francisco wasn't just 47 square miles. It, it became the San Francisco highway, uh, you know, the, the region around San Francisco, which is hundreds of miles. Yeah, it's, it's square miles. It, it makes you realize that, we, like, one hand, you say, like, wipe your forehead, we, we fixed it. The fact that we aren't just all dying in our cities and just being squeezed to death, but you can say in a lot of ways, it hasn't been a good solution that first people commute down to, you know, Palo Alto, Mountain View, and now they're commuting out to Tracy. And the question is also, in our major metros like this, are we reaching a point in which there is no more sprawl to be given? Because I think it's the amount of congestion we have in our <laughs> in our roadways, it's hard to say that more sprawl is even technically on the table. Well, we have urban growth boundaries, which constrict it. Um, I think technically we could sprawl out if we wanted to, but uh, we have we believe that we shouldn't, and that means that we need to be even more willing to upzone um, yeah. than other regions like Houston who are willing to sprawl out and out and out. Yeah. So, so if we want to be environmental, we have to be even more willing to build up than they are out there uh, in Texas. And that and that is certainly a big thing with with our cities is they want to be environmental but are they willing to change the way they function as far as upzoning in order to cause less commuters and most don't seem to very seem to be willing to engage in this trade off. Most seem to say we, you know, the fact that more people are commuting into our town isn't really an environmental issue that we take responsibility for. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I tend to hear, at least. Uh, so that's that's one, which is you know supply uh, issues. Uh, one thing is if we want to make sure that rising land values don't just mean basically a boon to landowners, uh, you have limited equity things. Like limited equity could be like community land trusts is one way. So which is the land value is more or less held in trust and individual land. I guess tenants or land uh, people who hold land tenure don't actually gain from it. They can't profit from it. They can't sell sell it. But uh, and this is one way to make sure that you can have you know things that sell but don't sell for more just because land goes up. Yeah. So the bubble around, I mean the uh, the cluster of options for uh, preventing landowner profit that I identified there is. Um, that you can take the bundle of sticks that landlords have, that landowners have, and kind of play with it so that it's not fee simple. You don't um, you, you don't have the right to sell at, at as high as price as possible. You um, you get to enjoy the land right now, but then when you die, it doesn't, or when you sell the land, uh, it doesn't go for the highest profit. Yeah, limit the limit the profit on sale. That is. Uh, one cluster of solutions to the problem, which includes, uh, you know, lip- limited equity co-ops, uh, community land trusts, and inclusionary housing, where the housing is owned by you, but um, 
um, but you can't sell it as high as possible. I mean, it, it is very interesting that, yeah, I mean, you talk about the, the bundle of rights, you get property rights. People seem to be very, have the tendency to say, property rights, you know, you got to support it all or you are all against property rights. So, really, you know, property rights contain many different aspects that could be subdivided and treated, you know, differently. And, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we have a judicial system that is willing to not oversimplify. We have, but if you talk about the fact that anything from taxation to these limited equity things, yeah, people tend to say, like, that's against property rights. Like, that's ends the argument or something. Um, when, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning that property rights are a social construct which have many different tendencies. The right to occupy, the right to sell, the right to extract minerals, the right to destroy. And, yeah. like, even if you own something, you can't dump oil on it. You can't do all sorts of things which are not part of your property rights. Yeah, so... Other than increasing supply, all of the other, you know, ways of creating more affordable housing that I can think of are, you know, by playing around with the bundle of sticks that is property rights. Yeah. Um, and one way is when you sell your land, you can't get the highest dollar for it anymore. You you have to sell it at appreciation of only 130% or so. Yeah. Uh, look at bubble to bubble. Next bubble is seizing land titles without compensation. And I think to some extent, you could say this has happened in places like, you know, China and, you know, places where there has just been confiscation of land. Places do it to like kind of a, a half measure in places like Singapore. Singapore paid out kind of previous rates of land. You know, it's kind of the anti-Prop 13. They paid people a fraction of of the land, and the longer it has been since they started this program, the less they pay in real dollars. So, so there's always a trade-off there. And I mean, you look at what happened with agricultural land in Japan after World War II, that was basically seized. Uh, and in the end, it was a success, but it's always dangerous when you just deal with, oh yeah, let's throw out the entire judicial precedent and just grab land. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, I mention it just because people sometimes bring it up. Um, and um, and I wanted to say, you know, anytime people say, let's just seize the land uh, of the rich, we should tell them, well, you can't do that in America. You have to tax the land of the rich instead. Because anytime you seize land in America, you have to compensate for them. So that's not actually a solution to um, to inequality in America because you have to pay the market value anyway. It's a solution that's so extreme that it would mean a complete... You know, throwing out the you know, the judicial system, which yeah. the question is, can we possibly end the inequities of this without, I guess, toppling the entire history of judicial precedent in, in America? And I, I, I fingers crossed that we can figure a way to go forward without tearing everything to the ground. But well, yeah, you, you can't do it because of the Fifth Amendment. So anytime someone says, "Let's seize the land," you have to say, "No, tax the land, not seize the land." And that's the thing: taxing the land, which is you know perhaps the the backbone of the show, uh, exploring the idea LVT. Uh, I certainly give my thumbs up to it. Listen, listen to other episodes if you want to hear more about that. Uh, but then you talk about you know regulation, and that's the final stick. Uh, actually, no, uh, public housing is is one more thing we bring up, and I think we'll talk about more of that later when we talk about kind of the public utility aspect of this. But regulation, and this is can be everything from you know firm price controls with all the you know pluses and minuses of that to things that are uh, I think more uh, more nuanced. But uh, yeah, so. 
in particular, when people talk about rent control is the is what they want to fight for to fix housing, it is one choice among many, and they are not really either or. These things, to a large extent, can exist uh, all at once. You can have land taxes that fund public housing, plus anti-gouging laws, plus community land trusts, plus a lot of upzoning. I mean, there's really no reason that we have to say, pick your poison, and that's the only thing you choose here. Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to um, point out that there's many solutions to the problem of land value is going up. The ones, I mean, we should create a bundle that makes sense for our situation, uh, considering their their uh, trade-offs. And here is one big trade-off when you talk about two of these things. Uh, and this is something I think isn't brought up enough, uh, the taxing power versus the police power of the government. Uh, so this is, this is a, a legal distinction. And uh, if you talk about, let's take away the right to profit of land rents through taxing, this is a tax power. If you say, let's end the right for people to charge higher rents through rent control, this is creating a law. And if you break it, you're basically t- taking it up with uh, you know, the right of a city to have different laws. And there are differences in how you can treat both of these. So maybe explain a bit the, you know, what the difference in tax power and police power is in this context. The tax power allows the state to to tax away the value of your of your possessions, among other things. Um, whereas the police power allows the state to uh, make regulations for health, safety, and the general welfare, um, but the state is uh, not allowed to take away from the owners of the property, according to the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, which protects um, which protects owners from takings. Yeah, so uh, zoning is a type of police power. Yes. And for part of that reason, there is an idea that if you if you do a spot-down zoning, if you take one particular plot and say, you can't build, you know, let's say anything here, you can't just say that without saying, and we're going to compensate for you because it is... Uh, it is a police power. At least there has been in different... I, I think state by state, there's differences to how much this can actually be enforced, but there's always the risk of arbitrary uses of police power being saying that you're just confiscating uh, a property right. And uh, there's, a, there's a quote from Armstrong v. United States which says, the police power was designed, or the, the Fifth Amendment was designed to bar the government from forcing some people alone to bear public burdens which, for in all fairness and justice, should be borne by the public as a whole. So uh, when you're trying to create uh, welfare policies, you're supposed to, theoretically, you're supposed to have the entire society bear the burden of providing these public goods. Yeah. And that's what the Fifth Amendment is supposed to do. Sure. Theoretically, anyway. And it's really interesting if you say, like, let's, you know, let's find a bunch of billionaires and let's just take everything they have. That, you know, if you say it just like that, let's let's just go out and grab it, that would be considered a taking by the police power if a city says, we're making a law saying billionaires must give all their stuff. But if you say it's a tax, which could do more or less the same thing, for instance, there's a lot more leeway. And as I understand, the only the, the, the basic rule on that is it has to be uh, have a rational basis. Yeah, you're not supposed to discriminate using a tax uh, under the fourth, 14th Amendment, which you can read about actually in, in the Norlinger versus Hans uh, dissent. Yeah. 
um, which is a very I, I think if you talk about the the discriminatory basis of the fact that that people who benefit from Prop 13 are largely you know uh, tend to be overrepresented by non-minority homeowners. It's it a lot of people say, boy, it really could be challenged on that basis, but. Yeah, we'd like to see that. <laughs> it would be interesting. Um, but yeah, in, in the Nordlinger episode of, of this program, uh, which uh, Johnny Miller, we, we he he was saying that he he made a, a, a paper and a plea against Prop 13 saying it even failed the rational basis. But what is kind of saying, it's very hard to fail the rational basis because it's saying as long as there's a good reason <laughs> that isn't discriminatory, uh, that's good enough, you can make a tax. <laughs> yeah. And I think this is one way where it's actually really fascinating insofar as people, you know, with Prop 10, I think the standard narrative is landlord profits are too high. Let's end this with rent control. And right there in Prop 10, and you go more into kind of nuances of it, it says this will still protect a landlord's right to fair rate of return. On their investment. On their investment. Correct. And that's that's right there in Prop in the Proposition 10, which is the repeal of Costa Hawkins, it says let's let's uh, let's protect that. And you make the case saying that even though they said it, there's really no way you couldn't protect it because the California court system has, in a number of cases, addressed ways in which they say that a landlord's or a landowner or a property owner's right to a return on their investment is protected, and that can't be taken away. Yeah, the fair rate of return clause in Proposition 10 uh, basically comes from the rent control judicial decisions that came in the past, which said that anytime you have rent control, localities have to guarantee landlords can continue to make a fair fair return on their investment. Which raises the question, what is fair? Yeah. <laughs> and what is... Con- and so, uh, interesting distinction uh, is that um, this is based in Fisher v. Berkeley, I see here, and uh, it's based on a fair return on their investment, what they paid for it, and not what the current value is. So, it's so it's all about what the property owner paid and not what it is worth today, which in some say, okay, if it increased in value, that sounds good. Uh, it also says they get a they can be they can take into account the fact that to maintain a uh, uh, or apartment building to the minimum level necessary to keep up with code compliance that costs money and they can they can take that into account. Yeah, that was in Kavanaugh. But what if they want to make things better? Like let's say let's do better than the absolute minimum and make a, a unit. Let's add better windows. Let's do like just anything better. Uh, it and they actually ruled that they couldn't, right? Yeah the uh, the constitutional standard doesn't make localities protect the investments that are made after the rent control law was passed. So after the rent control law was passed, the rules have changed, and the landlord is not guaranteed to make a fair return on any new investments. And on, I mean, honestly, as as a person who's renting, if you put in new windows, that actually is that actually is kind of a good thing, because I mean, I'd rather have a place that isn't falling apart. Uh, I like this quote that you quote here. Uh, f- this is from the uh, uh, Gallon v. Clovis, two thousand one. 
This is a court decision for those price-regulated investments that fall above the constitutional minimum but are nonetheless disappointing to investor expectations. The solution is not constitutional litigation, but, as with non-regulated investments, the liquidation of the investments and the transfer of capital to more lucrative enterprises. Yeah, the court <laughs> anticipates that rent control can cause landowners to not invest anything new into the property, and that's what they're supposed to do if the rent control encourages them not to invest in it. I mean, it's it's such a weird kind of, I mean, it, when you hear it, 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 there's not a lot of punch to that because it's very legalese, it's very boring, but it is saying basically, you know, landlords should never invest and, and make the unit better for people. They should invest it into different parts of the economy. <laughs> like it's, yeah. if something is rent controlled, it is working as intended that no money gets put into it above the bare minimum. Which, <laughs> yeah, the city says what you have to spend money on, and the landlord has to spend money on those things. And then other than that, basically, you the landlord shouldn't uh, invest anything new. And one more thing they can take into account, and I think this is, I mean, there's a certain sense, but it's also kind of funny that if you make things better for... If you make things better for your tenants above the minimum, you can't take that into account. But the amount of of uh, I guess in, the amount of time and money invested into I'm not sure about time, but the amount of money invested into petitioning the rent board for rent increases, they can take that into account. So yeah, that was actually Costa's previous law before he passed Costa Hawkins. Yeah, which is just kind of yeah. If your landlord makes your unit better, they can't use as a reason to say you know. <laughs> but but if they say like we want to increase your rent and we spent a lot of time doing it, that they can take that into account. Yeah, uh, that's just process. You yeah. have, it has to pay for the process that landlords are required to go through. As far as return investments go, and I think this is one thing that you underline here, and I think it's worth saying, it considers the return on investment on the land purchase itself, which of all things a land a landlord spends money on that the that the renter has to pay for the fact that land is getting more and more expensive and the tenant is now no matter when it's made is always going to have to pay for the fair return on buying land that means that higher land prices will be borne by the tenant yeah as long as the land was bought before the new rent control law was passed then the rent control has to guarantee the fair return on the investment, which includes the purchase price of the land. Yeah. Which, you know, from a Henry George perspective, from a land value tax perspective, that's that's kind of not what we want. It's, it's protecting, like, the wrong dimension, right? We're, it's protecting everything that happened before the rent control was passed, and it's not protecting any investments that happened after the rent control law was passed. Whereas from a, you know, from a land value tax perspective, what... What we want is to not protect any of the land value either before or after, but we do want to protect the investments because we want uh, you know investment efficiency yeah i mean it, it is it is good if you say you build an apartment that's actually that's productive, and if you get paid for it, that really overall is reasonable, but the amount of speculation that people have you know because when when land goes up. It, the money is being transferred to previous landowners, and that doesn't really do anybody, I guess, any good, the fact that there is speculation in the land market. And yet this whole system is, is by the court system, protected, that this is considered a fair rate of return on, 
Um, it, it, it's saying that land is an investment. Yeah. Land counts as part of the investment under the fair rate of return standard. Yeah, it's. I mean, just it's just worth underdressing. I mean, it's it's always one of the things you take for granted out there. But it's. Uh, yeah. uh, so okay, uh, now I guess to talk about, I think what are some ways that people would tend to make this kind of the simplest case against the entire body of rent control. They could say that uh, price controls in uh, there's been notable examples where they have done. I, I think a, a counterproductive job, such as the like the blanket price controls during World War II, when to keep prices from changing. Yeah, whenever you hear about rent control in economics textbooks, for example, they're always describing old school rent control that was from from during World War One or World War Two, where the U.S. government would just set an amount for each metro and say all the rents in the you know, San Francisco are going to be one thousand dollars a month, no matter what per per unit, no matter what's uh, how old the unit was, or no matter whether a, a new tenant moved in or out. Yeah, and I mean, it's one you don't see that anymore. Yeah, that's a that's an old fashioned sort of rent control, which doesn't really happen anymore today. So, a lot of the um, a lot of the ar- economic arguments against rent control were kind of arguing against the World War II s- style of it. Whereas California, we we like to think that we we are we're kind of more evolved. We know how to do it correctly. The first time I heard this is years ago. As far as in California, I heard when San Francisco introduced rent control in 1979, uh, they actually said that any new buildings will not be connected with it, which is a way yeah. of making sure that previously existing rents will not go up, but then you won't actually stop new production. And I thought, oh, at the time, it's like, oh, sounds like we fixed everything. That's a very clever idea. Yeah, the exemption for new construction basically allows new investors to come in and build new apartments and be guaranteed that they will be able to make profit off of it. Yeah. And not be subject to the rent control. Yeah, so, I mean, I think in one sense, you know, you could say, okay, in general, if you want to make sure you have the... Rent, if you want to stabilize rents and not have the negative consequences, it's worth saying that the negative consequences aren't taking away profits from landlords for increases in, in land values. Because in general, if a person's already made a building and it doesn't change, I mean, there, there's, that's landlord profits not going up for no reason is actually not a bad thing unless you're a landlord. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I have no interest in uh, allowing infinite landlord um, profit increases yeah or rent increases but uh, I, but there are the negative consequences that economists have always pointed to is the fact it can stop more production correct it can stop more production or it can encourage existing landlords to take the unit off the market yeah so if I if I ask you in general you know is Costa Hawkins good or bad what would your response to that question be I think in general it has a good effect in that it creates a balance between the interests of current renters and the interests of future renters and landlords. Yeah. Um, however, the details, I think, can be tweaked, definitely. Yeah. Um, but the idea that we, that we need to balance the new with the old, I think, is really important. So it's, it's worth saying, the, I mean... I would probably say, on balance, I think there are a couple things that are so bad that I think it would need massive tweaks at the very, very minimum. But it did take, I mean, 
exempting new housing production and making sure that that happens for all cities, that's actually, you know, I think you have to mark this a point in, in its favor. And yeah. if you're arguing for rent control in the city, it's a way of, of saying that don't worry about the negative consequences because it's actually kind of a safety net in yeah. some senses. Yeah, proposition, I mean, uh, Costa-Hawkins, uh, th- I think the most more important part of it protected the things that were already in rent control in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. San Francisco and Los Angeles in 1979 and 80 already protected new construction uh, and already had vacancy decontrol. Yeah. The the thing that about Costa-Hawkins that I think is worst right now is the fact that it protects all single-family houses. Yeah. Um, because... Uh, for example, it, when Mountain View created rent control, they they had to exempt single-family houses. They also exempted duplexes. Sure. Uh, but I was surprised to see that the rent control only applied to something like 2 or 3% of units in Mountain View. Yeah. Uh, when I looked at the, the census data for, so, um, so for how many units in Mountain View are old and uh, and are multi, multi-family, and it's very few. And in most jurisdictions... I think it's the vast majority of houses in California are single-family houses, and Costa-Hawkins puts those off limits for rent control, which I think is uh, something that should be revisited. I mean, you yeah, you say like the amount, the percentage is low, and what are all the things that cannot cannot be put under rent control, rent stabilization through this? It's all single-family houses, yeah. condos. I th- is, is duplexes up to different places to figure out? I don't know if duplexes... Uh, yeah, uh, Costa Hawkins allows duplexes. Mountain View chose not to. Interesting. Uh, and then in any new construction, and new construction in this case means any construction past 1995, and that's... Yeah, 1995 is, or the year of the previous exemption for new construction. Like Yes. So if it's Mountain View, it's 1995. Yeah. And that will, if Costa Hawkins stays in place as is, will never, ever change. So yeah. if it's the year 2500, it's still going to be 1995 and anything passes new. So, I mean, at some point that needs to, at the bare minimum, need a change. Because if it's not at least a rolling window, it's just going to mean that nothing is covered in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a very good point, too, that like San Francisco, uh, they made it in 1979 to begin with, and Costa Hawkins makes it illegal for them to ever change that. They can't slide up to 1995, I believe. Correct. Yeah. Which is just more units that, that aren't covered, which is just saying that people deserve price stabilization. Might be something on the ballot, but very few people will get it as long as Costa Hawkins restricts what units can get price stabilization. Yeah. Costa Hawkins greatly restricts the number of units that can be subject to rent control. And let's talk maybe just for a bit about vacancy decontrol, what it is, what the arguments for are for it, and what the arguments are against it. Yeah, vacancy decontrol is a, uh, is a provision of Costa-Hawkins that says that any locality that has rent control has to allow the landlord to set an, uh, whatever rent he wants after all the old tenants are out. Yes. So after... So after all the old tenants have left a unit, then the landlord can raise it to market or raise it to even higher if they wanted to. Question one: Why might this be good? Let's so, say not good, but what are the what are the positive incentives to go along it, go along with it? Well, this encourages landlords to continue to be landlords after the tenant leaves. If if the rent is now say four thousand a month, and uh, but the controlled rent un, uh, 
under the city's rent control is two thousand a month, for, exa- for example, then once the old tenant left, there's no incentive. I mean, the, the landlord has a very very strong incentive not to re-rent, not to put it back on Craigslist. He'll just keep it for himself, or he'll uh, sell it to a new homeowner. Yeah. Um, or he'll, you know, he, or he'll hold on to it until one of his relatives needs it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think... So the so vacancy decontrol means that people can are able to find new rental units even under rent control. Yeah, I think, I think anybody who is engaging with, you know, rent stabilization programs should understand what is one danger, and one massive danger is not just it ends new construction, but it will actually transition more units away from being rentals and more towards being condos or other actual ownership schemes. And uh, people are pointing to, uh, like Mountain View, for example, it's having units that are currently under rent control that are being turned into condos. And it's possible this is a strategic measure by landlords to make a, a statement. But in any case, if you see what is previously... Uh, a limited number of rental units be turned into the same number of condos or less. That's just, I mean, it's hard to say that isn't just bad news for society. You're getting less supply. It's for people who can afford to spend a large amount of money on a on a purchase form of housing, and it further restricts the amount of rent, rental supplies uh, out there. It's it's, And I think the question is, how can we stop that from happening? It encourages landlords to convert to owned units. Either they could use it themselves or they could put it on the market, which could be good uh, if if people are able to purchase houses for, uh, for had a greater, greater availability of houses for purchase because of a vacancy control that might be good for home buyers, but uh, that generally, that's generally not people, people who are purchasing homes are generally wealthier than people who are in the rental market. I mean, I would say one sense, I mean, it, it is if any person is able to get a home, I, that you can say there's always a good part of it. But when, if you're buying it for, if you're buying something, part of that is going towards the investment part of it too. And that it's very hard to say that having people who are living because they need a roof over their head transitioning to people who are buying it as an investment, that's, that is a negative thing in general. Yeah, that is a problem with ownership under a <laughs> under a low tax system. Is that people would like to monopolize it? Yeah, and and that tends to that tends to increase the amount of uh, price too. If people are bidding it up because they expect a greater return, that's a classic. That's a classic uh, cause of of what's a boom in in prices. Yeah, I mean that's something that I I brought up in the um, in the article is why is it that no, nobody who ha- no cities that have rent control also do price control because they can do that if they wanted to. They could say we have rent control so that all so that all landlords can't make an, a profit on new tenants or on their existing or new tenants. Yeah. But they also can't make a profit by selling to a new person. And if you closed off both routes to profiting for landlords, then that would make rent control a lot stronger. So you say that that is legal. Is how is that not a taking? If you say that you can't make a profit from a home sale, well, it's exactly the same as rent control itself. You, the the, the constitutional standard says, oh, so if it, it only is a return on the investment of the initial purchase, yeah. Oh wow, that's interesting. So, cities that have rent control and 
and after Costa Hawkins is repealed, cities that have vacancy con- control could also have price control on their housing, which means that current landowners basically wouldn't be able to profit, wouldn't be able to make any additional profits starting today, uh, either either way, either rental or for sale, and that would make rent control a lot stronger, I think. But uh, but the fact that cities don't do price control, I think, goes to the um, goes to how progressive they really want to be. Yeah. I mean, Palo Alto, for example, you have people who have houses they bought for 100000 that are selling for 3 $4 million. They could make laws saying you can only sell it for the initial sale price plus some X percentage for, you know, change of of prices or something. Or even your Proposition 13 assessed value at that. That's a very convenient <laughs> number to look at, yes. yes. <laughs> and they could do that. But the question is, all the people in Palo Alto who say, you know, I'm not in for the money, would they actually say, but wait, please don't take away my my ability to sell it for three, four million. And I think, w- question one, would they revolt? Question two is, every time one of this $100,000 is going on the market, how, like, what would need to be set up to adjudicate a system where there's going to be a lot more people who want to buy it than there are, than there is supply? It's a it's a it's a classic you know it's a classic uh, problem of, of rationing. And unfortunately, we ration our housing through zoning without having you know price <laughs> price control to to compensate for it. Yeah, I mean, it, it would certainly it seems like it really would be a, you know a massive <laughs> a massive cluster of people trying to get the limited supply. Of housing, but you know, set up a lottery, set up something. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's the same system we have for inclusionary owned housing, inclusionary rental housing. We have lotteries for people in need, um, and you could, you know, if we if we really wanted to go down the uh, vacancy control route, I think setting up lotteries is is a reasonable way to do it. Yeah. Um, but it is worth noting that when Mark Zuckerberg wants to buy a house in Palo Alto, he can just drop money, he gets it. If he had to go through a lottery. That is one more incentive for there to be enough supply so that even the millionaires would be able to get it. Or would you just assume that if you're a millionaire, you get it through the black market? Yeah. Because um. <laughs> that's, the, that's the problem when you, when you ration something like this is there's always the risk of, you know, those with means will always just get it through the black market. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's something to address. But... Uh, vacancy decontrol. Let's talk about. I mean, some people bring up the a negative part. Of vacancy decontrol is the fact that it is more or less a privilege that accrues to current occupants and tends to penalize outsiders or new occupants. Yeah. Uh, every time, if you if you new old people leave, new people come in. If new people pay more, that means in general that there's a general anti newcomer sentiment reflected in prices and that that is generally sends people a bad message yeah that's one of the criticisms of of the rent control that costa hawkins forces you to uh to pass is that you you're discriminating against new tenants uh versus old tenants in the same way that proposition 13 discriminates against new homeowners versus old homeowners yeah it it, it forces you i mean costa hawkins basically forces you to have the exact same system for rent control as you have for proposition 13 and there's one difference, which is if you're an old homeowner in Prop 13, no one's going to evict you. But if you are protected with a with a you know, artificially low rent-stabilized rent under vacancy decontrol, 
your landlord has a very high incentive to evict you because it'll make a lot more money if a, if someone new moves in. Yeah, vacancy decontrol is an incentive to kick out the old tenants. So, so it sounds like in a lot of ways, either way, there's a lot of danger on either side. If yeah. you know, if you keep vacancy decontrol, the positives are you stop units from turning into condos and other ownership properties. Well, yeah, you, well, you, you encourage landlords to continue to rent it out after yes. the old tenants are gone. So, I mean, that's good not to see rental units disappear, but if you see more evictions of, of long-term residents and general anti-outsider bias, those are bad things. It's, it's very yeah. tricky. Uh, and also, it, the, the definition of vacancy control is, um, is kind of unfortunate in some cases. I think Jane Kim brought up a case last time that the Proposition 10 endorsement resolution came up, if your spouse was the original tenant and she passed away, then that's considered a vacancy even though you're still there. Um, Really? Yeah, and the landlord can jack up the rent to market rent just because your spouse passed away. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of unfortunate aspects to all of the... um, all of the ways that you could set up a rent control system. And I think it's interesting you, you talk about, you know, in, in the form of, you know, one negative consequence, which is units being turned into owner-occupied units. Uh, there's basically three steps that would happen if something is, is turned that way. One, one step is eviction. One rate is, is transform it into becoming saleable and then, uh, and then selling it. And places could make laws that say there cannot be condo conversions. But there are ways that people have gotten around this, uh, such as in San Francisco, uh, with uh, tenants in common. Is that correct? Yeah, tenancies in common conversion. TIC conversion, they call it. Yeah, how does that work? Can you explain that a bit? In San Francisco, where they uh, where they prohibit a lot of condo conversions, I think you just create housemate agreements between... So, so like, four people could buy a four-unit building, and they could write... Um, private contracts between them saying, I'm going to use unit A and I'm not going to walk into your unit B hmm. ever. Uh, you know, you have the right to to exclude me from unit B. So essentially it's a private condo. Sure. Uh, even though it's not a recorded subdivision with the county. And so the you, according to the county, you own, an, I mean, four people own a building as tenants in common, which means all of them could walk into any of the units, but in fact, you have you also have this supplemental private agreement saying no tenant A can't walk into tenant B's house. So in, in unit, yeah. so you know, if you look at the laws, you cannot turn things into condos, but in practice, people can turn into condos and sell it. Yeah, TICs are, I think, essentially the same as a condo agreement, um, where the condo subdivision was was forbidden. And in what this, in you're saying that the the uh, president has said that you cannot, you cannot ban TIC agreements, which in a certain way seems to indicate you can't, you can't in general stop rental housing being turned into owner occupied units if, if there's always these workarounds. Yeah. Well, this this step, subdividing it into unit sized, subdividing a, a building into unit sized uh, ownership chunks uh, can't be forbidden yeah um so yeah there's the three steps for converting a unit from a rental unit to an owner occupied and step two is 
subdi- subdividing it, and basically you can't forbid subdividing it. So in, in other words, you can't force a landlord to remain renting out to people. Uh, I mean, in fact, by the Ellis Act, it says you yeah, can... Yeah, so can... step one is to, is to kick out the old tenant somehow. Yes. Uh, either, I mean, yeah, the Ellis Act says, yes, you can kick out all the old tenants. Um, or you can do owner move-in evictions, or you can just uh, wait for the old tenant to leave, which, you know, which is what's supposed to happen when, you, <laughs> when you're renting out new houses on Craigslist. Yeah. Um, and step two is is to subdivide it, and then step three is to uh, actually sell it. Hmm. I mean, they're, they're, and it's worth saying, the Ellis Act is a state law that protects the rights for, you know, for uh, landlords to evict everybody if they no longer want to be in the business of renting. And there's all the other sorts of ways that protect, you know, kind of landlord decisions to maintain their investment and, and stop doing what their landlord landlord business is, which I think is it's worth mentioning though that the entire legal justification, as you say here, for rent control being a police power is that it is treated like a public utility. Yeah, but, but in the same way, you know, a public utility, you can compel people to say if you are a local power, you must be able to take in as many new people as as need power. You must be able to increase capacity. But if you're a landlord, you don't have these same compulsions that rest on landlords. Landlords can, in fact, choose to you know, keep their capacity low in aggregate. And if you say there's new people and there's not enough room for them in the rental market, even though they are controlled as utility, uh, it's, the city never says, okay, we are forcing more units into creation. That doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a problem with just thinking of landlords as a public utility is that we don't regulate them as a public utility in in all ways we don't force them to build capacity when there's when there's a big shortage of housing like we have now yeah and that is you know that is the big problem here we need more investment into building more houses in the bay area and rent i mean the the fair rate of return standard um doesn't guarantee that that will happen yeah um I mean, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, you you need to, if if <laughs> cities need to put more units into creation and they are unwilling or unable to do that themselves, there is essentially certainly not enough public units for people who, who need them. There's far more demand than supply. And they can't, with a public-private partnership of sorts that we have with our private Landlords, they can't just say, "If you're a landlord, add <laughs> add five stories." You, they can't just say that to people. So, hey, how are we going to keep up with this if they can't basically do anything about it? Yeah, um, Costa Hawkins is one way of of balancing the needs of the past and the present, or the, the present and the future. But if we throw that out, we um, what I'm saying is that the the fair rate of return standard is is not a sufficient balance between the past and the future tenants' interests. Yeah. We, ideally, if we throw out Costa Hawkins, we would replace it with a new balance that um, that is able to protect the interests of future tenants who would otherwise not have a say in a lot of rent control dist- uh, jurisdictions. 
Yeah. So um, if you talk about, you know, what would what would good what would a real fix be like? You could say you could take out all the things we mentioned so far that are problematic about Costa Hawkins, such as the fixed 1995 date, such as the fact that it, uh, you know, precludes single-family homes uh, and other other units like that. But then on top of it, it could directly be tied with hitting capacity, such as, you know, renal levels, which are housing need allocation. Because right now, if a city does whatever and doesn't come up with capacity, there's very little of stopping that. And uh, one thing right now, and this is one section, uh, it you know, Prop 10 would remove state oversight over rental inclusionary housing or other rent control and new construction. So as it is, inclusionary zoning, such as the BMR percentage rate that go into new housing, is legally treated as rent control, whereas Prop, 3, uh, Prop 10, because it takes away state oversight, right now, through the Palmer fix and all these other measures which are making sure that IZ is incorporated correctly, uh, the state can say, you need to make sure that you don't set an IZ level that will stop capacity from keeping up. But if this goes away, it's, it's a bit scary that we're completely divorcing the state from having any power to you know, incent capacity, at least in forms of rental uh, rent control, such as IZ levels, which we currently have. Yeah. Um, one of yeah, my concern with uh, Proposition 10 is that it takes away all of the state's uh, current method, uh, mechanism that they use to um, to make sure that cities are providing enough housing. Um, it takes away the Palmer fix, which means that cities can have uh, unlimited inclusionary housing requirements. Uh, as by my reading, it, you can um, Proposition 10 would make it so that cities can say that 100% of all units would be affordable f- for people making 25% of the uh, area median income, which would have the effect of halting all private construction of housing, Yeah, uh, which doesn't have a subsidy. Um, so... Is it right to say that the original necessity of, of, I guess, the Palmer case and so on, were there actually cities that would raise their IZ level to, a, to an idea to actually suppress housing by design? Not yet, I don't think. I think the, the I mean, the Palmer decision was forbidding all inclusionary housing, uh, all inclusionary rental housing at all. Yeah. Um, it's not until now that we're seeing jurisdictions look at inclusionary housing as a possible way of saying we don't actually want housing at all. Sure. Um, the Yeah, so currently the, the state has a lot of oversight over cities to make sure that they're doing the right, so to make sure that they're um, trying to build enough housing so that they're allowing enough housing to be built. We have the RENA process, which says that cities have to zone enough housing, and then we have the um, we have oversight over inclusionary housing to make sure that they're not overly um, burdensome in order to so that they're not overly trying to prevent all housing at all from being built. The problem, I mean, my concern with Proposition Ten is that it takes away um, it takes away these tools so that the arena doesn't have any power anymore because cities can just make housing infeasible. Sure. Um, by by using rent control or inclusionary housing that's um, that's more than feasible that that has 
that's trying to take away more than the cost of, I mean, that's trying to make it so that you can't even recover the cost of construction when you build a building. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, I would say like, like people have said, oh, people are being paranoid about this. No cities would want to do this. I mean, speaking as someone who goes to Paul City Council all the time, uh, <laughs> I, I think in suburban exclusionary cities like this, I absolutely think this could be part of the game plan of people whose main, <laughs> whose main goal is to restrict new housing. I mean, they, the, the, the NIMBY coalition of Lydia Koo and Tom Dubois, Karen Holman, have been the pro-rent control side for reasons that concern me. I would say it's certainly, there is, saying that this could be used in bad faith to create outcomes which are bad for renters, I think, is worth considering. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with those um, <laughs> sure. individuals, but yeah, that, that is a concern that I have. Um, and I guess there's there's two things to worry about. One is how much are being w- would people who just want to harm renters could use this. And one question is, we talk about state control to make sure bad measures don't come into place. Is there the risk of things being done that are just thoughtless? Because we talked about earlier about the risk of extremely naive rent control, including new construction as rent control, would be naive in a way that is concerning because it it could possibly lead to bad outcomes. Uh, Santa Cruz is a measure out now that would actually include new construction if Costa Hawkins is is taken away. Yeah, and Richmond already has uh, covers new construction if Costa Hawkins is taken away. It's very hard to look at at motivations, but is this is this naivety or is this by design? In any case, it concerns me that more people don't have, I think, uh, an intuitive understanding of the trade-offs here. Because it is, it is very easy to say, are you on the landlord side or the renter side? When really it is looking at the policy, you want to make sure it's going to be effective. And I, if Santa Cruz and, and Richmond's currently is, is going to include new construction, I am concerned about that in a way that I think some people may not, I guess, either care enough to focus on or, or, or care about. I find it concerning the first time I heard this. Yeah, well, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's a, and, and I, I, yeah, I just worry that we're we're seeing this kind of. Uh, you have to choose sides, and it's either all good or all bad. When I think I think everybody who puts time into thinking about renter protections should understand these trade offs. Uh, I guess one. And one more concern that I think that wasn't really brought up here, but I just worry about myself, is I worry that if you have complete local control of tenant protections as far as price stabilization goes, there's going to be a lot of energy put into that through both local tenant organizations and local landlords. And it really is, if you look at all the different bubbles that people could be putting their time into to fix housing... Rent stabilization, I think, is I, I, there's a lot of cases you can make to say it is a perfectly reasonable thing to do as far as you know anti-gouging measures. There's no reason not to have some form of effective stabilization, but it is not a solution in the way that other things could be. It only goes so far. But the question is, it takes up all the energy. This is all anyone talks about. <laughs> that's, that, that's my experience. Yeah, it, rent control is one tool. And it's important to see that it, it does have, it is really useful. It is really good to, uh, 
protect renters from really extreme rent increases. Yeah. But it's not um, a silver bullet. It's like, um, like Rick Jacobus said, it's it's kind of like having a spare tire. It's it's a good temporary measure while you build up your while you actually while you build up your construction of new housing to match the scale of the problem. Yeah. But it's not in and of itself a solution to create a uh, um, a vibrant um, community in the future. Yes, I mean in, in the extreme case, yeah, it's. If you talk about anti-gouging measures, is it is that a good thing? It absolutely is a good thing. But are anti-gouging measures a, a, any sort of replacement for making sure there's enough units for everybody? And it certainly doesn't create more units. As yeah, yeah. I mean, I think yeah, it's, it's very similar to Proposition Thirteen. I think Proposition Thirteen kind of that it, its heart was in the right place in some sense, in that it um, it was trying to protect households from extreme tax increases but it went too too far by making it so that your the tax you pay is so divorced from the the value um rent control can do the same thing where increases that you allow are so far apart from where the market is that um that is starting to cause other problems as well i mean it is interesting that the that the motivation for both you know you know, Prop 13 back in the 70s and, you know, the most urgent need for rent control is about short-term shocks. Yeah. It's about saying that within the course of a low number of years, let's make sure that people aren't completely, you know, knocked, you know, you know uh, just just bowled over by, by these shocks. But in the long term, look at Prop 13 and you see places where land is incredibly underutilized because... There's the incentives are all wrong. People are now living on things that are worth four million should be able to support a lot of a lot of people who need housing, but instead, there it is keeping with the trend of the minimum from decades ago. And when you completely divorce yourself from from market market incentives like that, it it certainly leads to bad outcomes like this. Yeah, I think that if the um, the tax increase portion of Proposition 13 said that instead of your tax can only your, your assessment can only go up by the inflation rate. If they made it so the your assessment can go up only by the inflation rate plus seven percent or something like that, then sure. Proposition 13 would have been much less damaging. Yeah, um, I could Im- I could imagine like a, a function where it you know for short shocks it you know because let's say it goes up a ton and then it goes down. You know, around here, it never goes goes down. But you could imagine for short, temporary shocks, it doesn't make a big difference. But long-term structural changes in land values, it it reflects it. That would actually be effective. <laughs> yeah, it should have been sort of a a low-pass filter rather than just a um, subsidy to all the old homeowners. Yeah. And um, and it's and in a lot of ways that it says we are protecting one part of your property rights, which is not to be you know taxed out, you know, to to limit your exposure to taxes. Uh, but it didn't take away other parts of property rights, such as ability to sell for for whatever money you want. So in a lot of ways, it it did not take a very holistic picture of what property ownership means. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, I feel that I, I really enjoyed this, this blog post, and I personally would say, uh, I, I personally make a recommendation for myself to say that it's it's worth seeking out and taking a look at uh, Prop 10 in-depth Costa Hawkins repeal and rent control expansion. Uh, because I think that no matter what your current understanding is, I think anyone would learn a lot, learn a lot from from reading about all these different uh, precedents and, and things that affect it. What are the main things you want to uh, emphasize for all listeners who just want the quick takeaway <laughs> from what they should know right now about, uh, you know, kind of either the big picture rent control or the specifics of Prop 10? Okay, so rent control is, is one, or rent control is, is a poor a use of the police power and that's just one way that you can attack the problem of rents and it's very limited compared to the tax power and the tax power is what we really all should be focused on yeah is is restoring the tax power to the state of California um because that's where you can really attack inequality whereas with the police power you can't you you know you you can play around with it the with ownership a little bit but it's not um you can't really attack inequality using the police power um, yeah, and uh, Costa Hawkins repeal in specific, there's there's a lot of um, nuances there, and I think that we really should have the state still have oversight over some aspects of local rent controls and local zoning because because the we know that the incentives are wrong at the local level, so. You know, my, you know, kind of unrealistic in the short term, but my real goal, statewide rent control. And in some, some in Europe, I think actually it's in a federal level in some places, but if you said price stabilization is set and administered at the state level, I think it's have two benefits. It would have, you know, kind of making sure you don't have local discrepancies. It makes sure that you have kind of the oversight at the state level. Uh, but then on top of it is it would mean less energy is wasted on constantly fighting this back yeah. and forth local level. Yeah, and I think that at the state level you you would have more um, debate over the um, the actual effects of the legislate uh, the the actual effects of the policies. Yeah. Um, I'm sh- okay. So if if Costa Hawkins is repealed, I'm sure that in most places it's going to be really good for tenants. It will. Exp- localities will be able to expand rent control drastically and that's what most cities will do like San Francisco and LA. Yeah. And that's going to be good. Yes. Uh because I, I mean I used to be a rent control tenant uh until a couple months ago and it it was really it gave me a lot of peace of mind and that is a really good thing. Um it it in itself is certainly a fantastic thing. The question is how do you make it work in a system that works for everybody too? Yeah. Um but my concern with Proposition 10 in specific, in particular is that it uh, takes away all state oversight so that we could have bad actors at the local level that um, that don't want to take their responsibility in producing housing or don't care about the effects on future tenants, uh, and they could create uh, very counterproductive rent control laws, and the state would have no power to encourage them to fix it or to compel them to to take into account both uh, all the tenant interests as well as uh, as the interests of of those who are creating housing. And do you think personally it would be consistent for people who are for increasing capacity, which is to say people who are for upzoning and other measures to increase units, to also say that having the right kind of rent stabilization 
could be one consistent with it and also worth pushing for? Yeah, I think that rent control is one way of attacking the, the problem of increasing rents. Yeah, it, it stab- you know it stabilizes people's rents. Yeah, um, and it's entirely consistent with um, with upzoning and creating more housing. Yeah, um, as long as you kind of think through what are the incentives of the of the landlords, what are the incentives of investors? Are investors going to create housing for middle-income people when when they have um, the kinds of rent control laws that could be passed. Yeah. And and it's it's worth saying it's like I don't go to, you know, bed at night crying that investors don't get, you know, a strong enough rent and return return investment on this in itself, but they're still going to be investing and if they don't build houses they're going to get money on something else, and there's just going to be less houses. So unless, yeah, if, I if, think um, yeah, one of the uh, things that in the Bay Area a lot of so-called progressives like to do is they they attack people who are profit motivated. Sure, right? investors are just trying to make a trying to make money, trying to make profit, and so we should uh, oppose them for that reason. Yeah, and I think that can be counterproductive. When you consider what that profit motive, I mean, what what that money is actually coming from, I think um, one of the points that William Fischel had in, in his Zoning Rules book is that 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 profit motive or that um, that pressure to that profit is coming from future tenants or future uh, residents. Yeah. So the the interest of people who, I mean, the interest of the the interest that is generating the pressure to build housing, the the interest that's going to create profits for developers, is actually the same as the interest of the future residents of the community. And so, if you if you just say we want to um, we want to attack people who are profit oriented just because they're trying to make a profit, that also means that you're trying to suppress the interests of future residents. Yeah. Um, well, and and what are the what are the alternatives to it? The only alternatives to having these, you know, distinctly amoral developers and other people who you know construct housing, is to say, okay, there's going to be only only marginal cost public housing, but it is a challenge one to make that happen, uh, and two, I mean, certainly. Uh, you know, certainly, just strong rent control alone will do nothing to put that into effect. You still need to figure out how we funding it, how we're going to build it. Yeah, uh, our overall problem <laughs> is a shortage of housing, and we yeah. have to figure out how to solve that, how yeah. to address that problem, and increase the supply of housing drastically. Yeah, I mean to say something that's like perhaps a bit incendiary. It is interesting to look at because of this entire system is going to regulate to some extent the amount of uh, return investment that would accrue to to land to, to uh, landlords without actually doing anything to compel them to increase supply and without doing anything to, I guess, stop the return on their speculative. You could call it, you know, uh, you could call it neoliberal to an extent. You know, it is saying we expect private actors to continue to invest and produce within kind of a minimal level of, of regulation, but without actually addressing any of the actual structural needs behind it. Yeah, I think it's important to look at it kind of holistically. If we if we have rent control but we but we don't have price controls, then we're, you know, we're telling people that they should convert to 
for sale housing, and yeah, uh, that's uh, can be counterproductive. <laughs> I'd yeah, it's, it's I I certainly think it's worth understanding the trade offs and and really uh, educating oneself on all this. So thank you very much for coming down here today. Okay, thank you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, thanks. We have been talking to Jonathan Randolph. This has been the Henry George Program. You can find this episode and previous episodes at the website seethecat.org, where there's ways to subscribe on iTunes and so on. This is a presentation of KZSU Stanford. <laughs> <laughs>